Hello everyone, my name is Mati Rigo at Yale and US College and I'm here today with Gary Winslet who is a visiting assistant professor at Boston College and he will be an assistant professor of international politics and economics at Middlebury College uh, starting fall 2018. And Gary is working on a group project titled Competitiveness and Death, Trade and Politics in Cars, uh, Beef and Drugs. And he has been published at the Journal of World Trade, World Economy, and the World Trade Review. And last year, uh, Gary and I were both Max Weber Fellows at the EUI in Florence, where we had the chance to um, talk more in person. And I think that's when the conversation first started about the European economy, the European Union, and the topic that we're going to discuss now, and that's the European car industry and environmental regulation. So Gary, my first question would be, could you just give an overview of the European car industry in world trade in the 1970s, let's say? Yeah, so thanks for having me, Mate. Uh, so let me just sort of set the scene here. So as we all know, after World War II, the European community starts to come together first with the European coal and steel community between France and Germany, and then it sort of expands out from there. And you, you get sort of a flourishing of trade in Western um, and uh, in the, the Western side of Europe, uh, you know, in the 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. um, but by the time you get to the 1970s, uh, most of the, the tariff barriers have been reduced. The big barriers left are these regulatory barriers. So you've got, you've got that going on. And this is when the European community really starts to try to tackle these. They start with sort of the Cassis de Dijon decision in 1979. Um, you know, prior to that, you had had a whole bunch of attempts to have Europe-wide regulations. Um, and th those had run into all kinds of sort of political difficulties. Um, so you, you've sort of got the European community in the 70s starting to try to figure out how to politically deal with differing regulations from one state to the next that's blocking trade. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you've got a car industry that is really starting to try to have a continental footprint. Mm -hmm. um, and it starts with, with Ford Motor Company, who really is, is the first company that starts selling cars on a continental-wide basis, not just one country to the next. The other thing that happens is that the economies of scale you start needing in the car industry really go up uh, at this time. So in the early 70s, to, to have a profitable car, you really need to make about 800,000 of them um, before you can sort of reach the point at which you start breaking even. Is that, but is that, is that, is that, it's not annual production, it's sort of, yeah, that's that's annual. That's annual. Okay. So okay. yeah, so so you need to be making around eight hundred thousand cars a year to really be hitting the proper economies of scale because mm -hmm. you have such high fixed costs. Uh, but by the end of the nineteen seventies, that's not eight hundred thousand; it's two million. Mm -hmm. So like you've really got to be hitting scale by the end of the nineteen seventies because uh, American companies are starting to to hit higher scale and they're being pressured by Japanese companies. This is when Toyota and Honda start being really world players in terms of the, the, the global car industry. So you need to, it, from a firm perspective, you need to have a continental basis. And from sort of a, a European perspective, they start wanting to sort of have 
continent-wide commerce, not country-by-country country commerce. Uh, so both of these are kind of traveling in the same direction. Uh, the thing is, though, you've got a bunch of regulatory differences that are, are getting in the way of that, are threatening to get in the way of that. And one of the most important ones is around auto emission standards. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where we get into the, the early 1980s. Is that a European so, invention? I mean, we hear a lot about emissions right now about the Volkswagen scandals, but yeah. is it were these were were there country regulations or was it? I mean, did did well? So this is the, so this is where it starts. So you mm -hmm. hear about Volkswagen now, but the story that I'm about to tell you is sort of how we get to there. Mm -hmm. um, so the EC starts regulating auto emissions in the 1970s, but. You know, recall that the, the it's still the EC at this point, not the EU. Sure. Master Treaty's not been signed. You know, the, the sort of regulatory powers are still much more shared with the national governments in the 70s and 80s than they are now. So that's important to keep in mind. So in the early 1980s, um, you've got certain states that have this burgeoning environmental movement. One of them is the Netherlands, and another is Denmark, and another is West Germany. Mm -hmm. In all three of those places, this is really when you start to see environmental movements have real political power. So it's in 1983 when the German Green Party in West Germany finally passes the 5% threshold and can be represented, represented in the Bundestag. Um, and something similar happens in uh, the Netherlands and in Denmark. What's interesting about the Netherlands and Denmark, though, is unlike Germany, they don't have sort of a domestic car industry, right? So in West mm -hmm. Germany, yeah, you have the environmentalists that are going to press for higher emission standards, which we'll get to in a moment, but you've also got a car industry that's very wary of what this might cost them. That doesn't happen in Denmark or mm -hmm. the Netherlands. In Denmark and the Netherlands, you've got some really strong environmental movements and no car industry pushing against them. So then here's what happens after that. So. Um, these countries start pushing for what are called catalytic converters to be mandatory. So mm -hmm. stick with me for a second. Uh, I'm, I'm going to try to make this as n not technical as possible. Sure. Basically, what a catalytic converter does is it takes a lot of the really damaging um, byproducts of an internal combustion engine, and instead of being super environmentally damaging, it turns most of that into carbon dioxide and water, mm -hmm. which are at least less bad than some of the sulfur and the other stuff that cars were putting out in the 70s and 80s. So the thing is, these environmental movements start pushing for these catalytic converters to be mandatory. Um, and they do that in Germany and in Denmark and in the Netherlands. The problem is uh, France, uh, France and Italy, and to a lesser degree the UK, absolutely do not want these to be mandatory. And the reason is, uh, especially in France and Italy, they specialize in manufacturing smaller vehicles like Peugeots and Fiat's. Um, and these catalytic converters are going to add about $500 to the cost of a car. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really not good for Fiat and Peugeot, who sell to less affluent consumers than like Mercedes-Benz or BMW or some of the other uh, German firms. Um, and not only that, but a catalytic converter requires the use of unleaded gasoline. So, Monte, mm -hmm. you, you may or may not have heard like your, your parents talk about this at one point, 
but there used to be like leaded gasoline, right? Sure. I mean, that was the standard, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, the reason, one of the reasons, it was, this wasn't the only reason, obviously, but one of the reasons that they switched to unleaded so much was because you can't have leaded gasoline go through a catalytic converter. It, it essentially like breaks it, like mm -hmm. it won't function anymore mm -hmm. if you send lead through that. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have to have unleaded gasoline for a catalytic converter con converter to work properly. But at the at the time in the early 1980s, 1983, 1984, 1985, uh, in France and Italy, unleaded gasoline is almost impossible to find. So were you to force Peugeot and Fiat at the time to adopt these catalytic converters, those cars would basically be useless the first time they needed to get a refill of gasoline. Sure. So that's not acceptable to them at all. Um, and, and at the time, uh, in France and Italy, the uh, green movement had not gotten as big as it would later get. So you've got this big fight at the EC level between France and Italy on one side, who absolutely do not want mandatory catalytic converters, and environmentalists, particularly in the Netherlands and Denmark, who very much do want these sort of mandatory catalytic converters. And what this is all, what this whole fight is doing is at the moment it's holding up this sort of continentalization of the auto industry in Europe in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. you can't have a continentalization unless you have sort of continent wide regulations. And this is the big thing that's sort of standing in the way of that. Okay, let me just stop you here. So, what happens to non European car manufacturers such as Ford or Toyota yeah. or Honda? if they wanted to sell on European markets. So what are you asking? So what, you know, did, did non-European car manufacturers um, have to abide by the same regulatory standards as Denmark and uh, the Netherlands were pushing for, such as Ford? I mean, did Ford meet these standards at the time? Well, so, so here was the thing. Uh, if you wanted to sell, so Ford was, tr was trying to continentalize the market, um, and that was working for them. The thing was... How, how would you define continentalize? How would you define continentalize? Do, do you mean that they wanted to sell in all West European states, essentially? Yeah, so, so not, only, not only did they want to sell in all of the Western European states, but and this is the important part, they wanted to be able to have sort of one production line which is to say to have one sort of big conveyor belt that produces all the cars. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What you want is to have one process for making a car for the whole continent. Mm -hmm. You don't want to have one production line for France, one production line for Luxembourg, another production <laughs> line for yeah. Spain, another production line for Italy. Like it doesn't, the economics don't work out if you do it that way. Mm -hmm. um, and if Denmark and the Netherlands um, were either a went their own way and started promoting, started requiring catalytic converters by themselves, they would have created that problem. Or, um, you know, so if they, if those two countries on their own mandate catalytic converters separately from the rest of the, the continent, mm -hmm. then all of a sudden Ford and Toyota and Honda can't sell continentally. Mm -hmm. So that's a problem. So you want the whole of EC to have the same rules, but Denmark and the Netherlands want these rules to be really high. Sure. Um, and so, but but nobody else wants them to have their own separate rules. Not the businesses, not the EC. Um, and so you get this deadlock for a while. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so then, so here's what happens. So later in the 1980s, a couple of developments happened. So the first is that environmentalism continued to strengthen as a political movement across Europe. So it wasn't just Denmark and the Netherlands. It started to get a lot more popular in France and the UK and to a lesser degree, Italy. So, and these environmentalists are not backing down. They want higher emission standards. They want the air to be cleaner mm-hmm. and they're, they don't really care what the automakers have to do to make that happen. And at the same time, some of the technology around catalytic converters gets a lot cheaper. Um, so at, at the beginning of the 80s, they had to be made with platinum, mm-hmm. as you, you might imagine. Yeah, that's super very expensive. expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it, it sort of has a reputation uh, for a reason. Uh, by the end of the decade, they, they're a lot cheaper. Um, and so that, that helps a lot. The other thing that happens was the EC, uh, in the middle of the decade, had the foresight to tell all EC member countries that by 1989, uh, they had to have unleaded gasoline widely available across their countries. Mm-hmm. And what this does is it doesn't, it, it obviously helps the air quality, but it also means that, um, the car manufacturers are not afraid of unleaded gasoline being unavailable. Mm-hmm. So that, that big part of their opposition to catalytic converters isn't there. Uh, and it becomes very clear that the environmentalists aren't going to back down. The, the EC wants one standard. They don't care what the standard is. Mm-hmm. At this point, they just want to reduce these regulatory differences. The environmentalists are dead set on having a high standard. The automakers are sort of less opposed to these catalytic converters than they were at the beginning of the decade. And so what you get is you get this sort of united standard across Europe at a high level. They require these catalytic converters. They require much less emissions than had been the case a decade before. And it's Europe-wide. It's not just Denmark. It's not just the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. It's across the EU. So one of the cool things about this case is it shows that actually Trade can be really beneficial in moving regulations up. You know, there's often this sort of idea that trade undermines environmental regulations. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not saying that never happens, but it's not automatic. Mm-hmm. Trade can just as easily be used to ratchet regulations upward mm-hmm. as to take them downward. Sure. That's, that's very interesting. So how do we get from here to the Volkswagen emission scandal? Well, so... The Volkswagen emission scandal, uh, you know, that, that came out a couple of years ago, uh, basically what, so for anybody who's, you know, listening and not, you know, uh, fully sort of deeply involved in this, what Volkswagen was doing was they had set up software in their vehicles uh, that essentially understood when the vehicle was being tested in a lab versus actually driven. Mm-hmm. And, and it, by understanding when that was happening, it knew how to power down the vehicle such that it would emit far fewer emissions than it normally would. And so when it was driving on a, on a road, you know, out in the real world, there, the Volkswagens were emitting way more than they should have, and yet were essentially just cheating on the test, if you will. Uh, and it wasn't until um, this NGO in California invented a way to test emissions while on the actual road, but they got caught doing this. Um, One of the interesting things about this is that this NGO employed less than 10 people, Mm -hmm. and it had 
very little money. It was basically just guys in a garage, more or less, hmm. uh, tinkering. Um, and so it, it's, I think it's an interesting lesson in the power of activism within the global economy that such a small band of players can uh, really give a black eye to one of the, the major companies in the global economy. Um, so, mm-hmm. so what ends up happening is Volkswagen gets super embarrassed. They try to have this big investigation. Uh, it was very clear that it wasn't just one or two people who were involved in this. Lots of people knew. Uh, they got fined. They got regulated. They had to have uh, cars on the market be retrofitted. Uh, this was a sort of a big scandal for Volkswagen um, that's continuing to affect them to this day. And, and it really sort of undermined some of their corporate reputation because they had managed to, up until this scandal, have a, a not a, a perfect, but a better corporate reputation than a lot of big businesses. Mm-hmm. And the, the scandal has really sullied that. Mm-hmm. 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 Uh, okay, so just to end, I mean, I wanted to go back to the, to the 70s and 80s because you did some work on the American uh, car industry as well. I mean, all these yeah. environmental standards, how did they modify Europe's position or the position of European car makers in the global auto industry, right? Because, you well, know, so th- go ahead. So this is the classic example of what they call the California effect. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is something that uh, one of the sort of the deans of trade and regulatory politics, um, a guy named David Vogel, uh, sort of popularized. So in the, the late 60s and 70s, California raises its emission standards very high um, because it's got the worst smog problem in the world. Um, the thing is, uh, there's this company called Mercedes-Benz that you might have heard of <laughs> that uh, sell, sold a lot of cars in California. And so they all of a sudden have to create cars that emit a lot less in terms of pollutants that cause smog. The thing is, they don't want to have to have multiple production lines, and they also don't want to be undercut by German car makers who only are going to sell on the German market. And so what Mercedes-Benz does is they start pressuring the German government to raise its emission standards, uh, which ultimately happens. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this is sort of, uh, we we call this the California effect, and it is not the only example of of this happening, where trade is used to ratchet standards upward. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's sort of the, the connection between uh, California and American emission standards, and then the upward trajectory of European emission standards um, during that time period. All right, uh, Gary Winslet, thank you so much for uh, for talking about uh, cars and emissions today, and probably will continue soon. Thanks, Mate. Always happy to talk to you.